0: It's nearly two years since we started on this journey. From the outset, the aim of Polarised has been to investigate what is driving apart our society, producing the deep fault lines within our politics, fanning the flames of our raging culture wars. We've covered everything from the state of our democracy to the influence of big tech, as well as the role of religion, poverty, change, echo chambers, and much else between. But, you know, there's one thing that we haven't really tackled head-on until now. And some people would say it's the most divisive issue of our time. Certainly seems like it this week. Race. You're the most tolerant, lovely country in Europe. Says a a white
1: our
2: white well, man, what worries boring. me
1: about your comment is you are a white-privileged male who has oh. no experience. Oh. It is not the job of black people and ethnic minorities to educate white people on racism that is perpetrated by white people. Right. Why
2: this do you take exemption of the word exotic? Because it others her and associates her with a history... She's an African-American joining African a white, white royal family. As other and you can't and just say other. these Listen. things are racist when they're not. Welcome back to Polarised from the RSA. I'm Ian Leslie. And I'm Matthew Taylor.
0: This week we're asking, in this politically charged age of instant communication, how do we talk about race and racism?
2: To help us have better conversations about this almost insurmountable subject, we've enlisted the help of a geneticist. Adam Rutherford is a scientist and broadcaster who regularly appears on BBC Radio His latest book is called How to Argue with a Racist. It harnesses the latest research in human genetics to help challenge stereotypes and myths around race, what Adam is calling a weapon against scientific racism. And also in the studio with us today, Nimco Ali. Nimco was a child refugee from Somalia whose work to end female genital mutilation has earned her an OBE. Nimco is the author of What We're Told Not to Talk About But We're Going to Anyway, which is actually a pretty good topic for today's discussion. She's also a vocal presence on social media, especially when it comes to issues of race and racism. So this is a
0: point in the programme, we call it full disclosure. It's kind of our starting point in this conversation. And and I just want to raise, and I've thought a lot about this for the last couple of days. I've been reading... Adam's book and I've been thinking about this so this this is a statistic from the migration observatory I think it's called and it reflects a kind of major authoritative survey and this is the statistic I can't get out of my head Uh, adult children of migrants who were born in the UK so that's adult children who were born in the UK who are whose parents are migrants so let's be clear they the second generation are much more likely to perceive discrimination against their group than migrants themselves than their parents the first generation so 32 percent or second generation of, of the children of migrants say that they perceive discrimination. Half of that number, 16%, from first generation. So what I've been thinking about is this. I can't see any reason, objectively, why second generation migrants would experience more discrimination. So I can't see, I've thought hard about this, I can't see there's any objective basis to this. So this is, therefore, an issue of perception. You are twice as likely to perceive it if you are second generation. And I suppose the question, therefore, is this. Does that mean that second generation migrants who are British citizens, BME, British citizens, are in a sense more sensitive to, more alert to, maybe they have higher expectations of being treated with full equality, or does it mean they're just kind of more, I don't know, more sensitive, or arguably too sensitive in comparison to their parents? And I suppose the other question and I really don't have an answer to this. Is, is it a good thing or a bad thing if more people are more sensitive to this issue? Is it a good thing that people are very, very alert and intolerant of anything that could be considered to be discrimination? Or is it a bad thing that more people are walking through their lives feeling that they are having to push against the odds and having a kind of ready reason to explain why it is things aren't going Their way, as I say, I don't know the answer to this. It's been roiling around my brain, but maybe during the program we can kind of
2: refer back to it. Do you have any kind of immediate thoughts on it? Do do I have the answer? Uh, Yeah, (laughs) sure. No, I don't have the answer either. But and yeah, I think it's something we should get into. My hunch would be a a mix of things, but a, a big component of it would be what you touched upon, which is that the expectations of children born to immigrant parents will be higher than those. Immigrant parents themselves. They've grown up in Britain, you know, they feel British, same as everyone else that went to their school or at their workplace. Why aren't they being treated? So they're going to be very sensitive to any slights in the way that perhaps if you're an immigrant, you can maybe you kind of expect not to be accepted. So it's a mix of good and bad because it's a good thing that their expectations are raised. Nimco, what's your view of that statistic? How do you interpret yeah, it? Yeah, this is its
1: what you've just said. It is the whole bunch of the fact that you are British, so therefore you are more likely to be offended by it, which you have a right to, as opposed to the fact that I don't think you experience more racism. I'd probably be less to that of the first generation because the first generation would probably be the first person in that road, the first person in that school and all those other kind of things but you're just expecting to be just like anybody else so I think it's just the fact that you just feel uncomfortable in a place which you probably call home and, and you said that I talk a lot on social media about race, I actually don't I like race is one of the things that i don't discuss like you know because for me it's just a given in the sense that i think everybody is racist but it's just how they work with that racism and what they do and the impact it has on society around them it's something that i'm happy to challenge and happy to kind of deal with the misconceptions but i'm not consumed by it it's not something that is my day-to-day existence of the fact that I know I'm black. And ironically, I don't even consider myself black. I say I'm African. And that's a complete different conversation to a lot of people who second-generation, Juju heritage, have a conversation specifically about skin tone rather than culture and background.
0: So you're a very successful person. And I'm kind of interested in how do you respond when friends of yours, if they do, say, you know, the reason I'm not getting this job or the reason I'm not getting forwarded or the reason people aren't treating me well is is racism. And the reason I ask that is because I have had through my life friends whose kind of major personality flaw I have come to realise over many years is that they tend to blame everybody else for what's going wrong with them. And so my instinct when they do that is to say, come on, even if it's true, you've just got to cope with the world as it is and get on with it. But I don't think I'd say that to somebody who said they were being disadvantaged by racism. So I'm interested, you know, what's your first response Yeah, to that? I
1: do. And I understand it. But it's also one of those things is the fact that I went to a really good university and I did quite well and I do deal with that whole prejudice all the time. The, the reason why I'm a successful activist, everyone just thinks it's because I play the victim. and I talk about the issues that happened to me. I'm like, no, I'm strategic. I studied law and I knew how politics works. There, there is racism and accepting and the fact that you are going to have to work a little bit harder it's just the reality, it's, it's just the way that it is and it's unfair, as a woman I have to work a little bit harder because there's sexism but I think I always acknowledge my privilege more than the things that are counted against me, so I've got two young Somali cousins who go to grammar school and I'm talking to them about going to Oxford or Cambridge but they're scared and I understand why they're scared but I'm going to force them to go there because I know it's going to make their life so ultimately, yes there, there is racism and there is barriers but the whole point is that the first generation that came before and the ones that know how to avoid those things need to be able to say this is what you need to do and I would never say to somebody suck it up the reason why you're not getting promoted is because you're race because of racism and that's the, the way it is I'm like sorry but like you know, you have to work harder and it's just the way that it is and I think that's one of the reasons why I will say to my white privileged friends that you probably don't know what like you know issues like that you're dealing with but do you do you, do you have the right to talk about race and ask questions? Yes. Do I shut you down and cancel you because you don't understand my lived experience? No. I'm also from a continent where similar things are happening, and it was and it was really interesting that there was a, an editor in October who said to me, did you know that it was Black History Day? And I said, it's not Black History Day, it's Black History Month. And he said, but it's really weird that nobody talks about it. And I said, because a lot of London is now actually African, they're not black. There is nobody in my family that is not from a city in Somaliland. Like, we haven't even married outside of a city let alone marrying outside of a race so the idea that my niece and my little cousins and all these people are growing up trying to understand that black people are amazing you don't have to tell them that so i think the world has changed and because people are not really focusing on that we're taking a very american narrative of race and culture we are just having conversations that i don't understand and i don't engage with on a day-to-day basis that's why i don't talk about race on twitter because it's just not something that it's valid in a certain extent in terms of the way that I was treated and the way that the criminal justice system and things like that work but shouting about on Twitter is not going to change the demographics of this country.
0: Well, I'm sorry if we we, we misrepresented you when we introduced you. No, no, you. but it's interesting. No, the no, fact but... that because I'm
1: black, you probably think that and I'm an activist, that I'll probably talk about race on social media. Yeah, no, it's a, media, very, it's a very fair point. Yeah, um, I don't.
0: Adam, what, just coming to you, What how do you interpret that statistic about second-generation BME community feeling much more likely to feel they're discriminated against than their parents?
3: Yes, well, like you, I find it surprising. This, I presume... Is a reflection of the normalization that racism is less acceptable than it was historically. That maybe first generation immigrants anticipate and expected a level of discrimination against them, whereas we don't. We expect things to be British and fair. The British Attitudes Survey, which has been running since 83. I believe. It contains metrics which attempt to assess how racist a country is, although the stats are pretty difficult to analyse because even in anonymous surveys, people are unwilling to reveal uh, opinions about themselves or opinions that might be considered unpopular in in popular culture. So they ask proxy based questions such as how happy would you feel if your son or daughter married someone of a particular race. We've only got data back to 1983. The answer in 1983 was more than half of the people asked said they would be bothered, or there were two qualifications to it, but broadly they would be bothered. And you asked the same question in 2017, and the numbers dropped well below 20%. So, you know, by that single metric it looks like things are getting better. People are, by this metric, less racist than they were in the past 20 or 30 years ago. At the same time, first time they asked the question where it's transferred to not black or Asian people that their sons or daughters might marry and how would they feel about that, but they asked the question about whether it was Muslims and the number is again above 50%. The sort of shifting balance of what is acceptable prejudice or what is normalised prejudice is something which is changing. One of the things I say in the book is that prejudice just realigns with the cultural norms, this idea that there is a general trajectory towards progress. I'm, I'm an optimist, and I think that is probably correct. But it is interesting that asking the same question of a different demographic, and you get the same answer as you did 30 years ago.
0: So we'll come to the book in a second, but I think one thing that's interesting about this is that it looks as though white people think that racism is less of an issue, but minority members of minority communities think that racism has become... So in a way, the polarisation is now, is this a problem? And of course, that's exactly the issue that was kind of exploded in the kind of question time in the Lawrence Fox, uh, because... You know, he wasn't expressing a racist view. What he was saying is it's not a problem. And the people who say it's a problem have got a political agenda. So in a sense, there's a peculiarity here, which is that the polarisation is is almost not about the thing, but it's about the way in which you interpret and think about the thing. I don't, think, so,
1: so, I don't think he said racism is racism is not an issue. He said that this country is not a racist country in the sense that it's a lot more tolerant than other places. I was in Budapest during Christmas and around the New Year. There is, like, there is microaggression racism that you get on a day-to-day basis in the UK. It's fine. And I always say to people, just because I'm not offended doesn't mean you're not offensive. It's tiring to get offended every single... And the level of aggressive racism could actually just like really crumple you and make you want to cry. So the idea that white people in this country are saying actually we are a tolerant country, and I say this to my mother every single day, and I say it to a lot of ethnic minorities that constantly assume and expect things that they would not do for white people in their country. If I'm Trust me, if my mum, maybe not my if people from the city that I was born in, in Africa, if white people moved in and said we wanted to build a church, they'd say no because we're a Muslim country. If they say we wanted to sell alcohol, they'd be like, no, we don't drink alcohol. This country is the United Kingdom it's a Christian country the Church of England the head of the state but we're always constantly pushing things onto people and the idea the fact that you've been so accepted and tolerant should be something that's celebrated and I think that is what he said and as as a child of an immigrant as somebody that goes back to my own country and understands or even if you kind of look at the whole thing about black people and whatever if you look at Africa North Africans being asked if their children would marry a West African they would say no because those are black people so there's more intolerance on the continent of Africa about race and diversity than there is here in the United Kingdom. And that's what, what I think what Lawrence Fox was trying to say was the fact that this country is a tolerant country rather than say
3: racism is not an issue. I think that's a generous interpretation of it, but I agree with many of the points within there. Is the notion that racism is a, is a European gesture toward other countries in the world, I think it has a lot of truth to it because a lot of the ideas of race as we currently interpret them are inventions of, of European expansion and the age of empire and plunder. There's a phrase in reference to what you were asking, Matthew, that I really love. I think Helen Lewis, the writer said it first. And the phrase is, if all you've ever known is privilege, then equality feels like oppression. Now, I think that is a a very useful descriptor of the expression of people like that guy, who I, I, I don't think anyone had heard of, but he's the sort of living embodiment of privilege, then telling other people that racism doesn't exist or it's, or we're a deeply tolerant country and you can't say anything these days without being told that you're a racist. His life and his experience clearly doesn't resonate or doesn't have any bearing on the lives of anyone who has ever expressed racism. I'm not sure it's a useful thing to choose to express that unless there is a semblance of deep ignorance about your fellow people in the country that you, you live in. Well, let's come, let's try no, I was going okay. to about
1: privilege. This is one of the things that people actually don't see that black people can have privilege as well, in the, in the sense that if you're a Nigerian like, you know, living from the continent, knowing your identity. So, I, when I worked in civil service, there was this whole thing about um, diversity and inclusion. Some of the Black boys that were in the fast stream system with me were fourth generation educated, eaten black boys. We don't see class when it comes to race. So the idea of the fact that the, the position that Lawrence Fox was talking about is a position that a lot of black men in this country as African direct descent and African leaders hold. So it's something that somebody, and those are my fathers, those are my uncles, those are people who, when they go to their country, nobody tells them to go somewhere else. They are basically the white privileged men of like the Etonians and all those kind of things. So what what he was saying was from a position of the fact that this is my country. I think this country is like, you know, it's great. And they can say that in Africa, they can say in all these other kind of places. So I think we are being unfair to people who because I hang around with these people all the time and I understand their privilege and I understand the platforms that they're being there was no malice in his conversation and for him to have that vision of this country I think I don't think it's something that we, we need to be knocking down but it's something we need to be understanding if a, a guy from Scotland in a white working class community said that this country is not racist because my next door neighbour is a, a, a Pakistani guy that I love and stuff like that we would think, okay that's fine that's a great thing that you're saying but it's just because we just keep knocking these guys down because as he said he can't change where he was born and he can't change the skin tone he was born he, he can just use his platform to talk about something and what he wanted to talk about was saying that this country is not as bad as everybody wants to make it out
2: well, I, I, I thought sorry can i just the the response to what he said was just way over the top and really counterproductive a lot of it very vicious and personal i, I was sort of appalled by the response Right, he, he expressed himself insensitively he blundered in right like some guys do right I, i'm not kind of defending him is not kind of my point my point is is if this is what triggers you into this rage then I don't think you're, you're seeing things straight when you say things like the UK is a racist country the question and the implicit question he was asking was compared to where you know c- compared to which countries point me to countries which are a lot less racist than the UK well, um, all, well, all, country, all countries are racist metric,
3: though is it not reasonable to attempt to enable a discourse within our country the aim of which is to make people less racist. Because he's the majority it, it, it of is. this
1: country. He's the majority of this country. And if you want to use words like indigenous community, the largest population of this country is white. So if you're saying that your country is racist, and he's like, wait, well, it's actually not because we are a tolerant country. It was the same thing that you'd expect from a Kenyan to say, like, you know, you say, oh, your country is, like, you know, racist. And actually, no, it's not. So I think he can speak from the position of the fact that actually this is a tolerant country
2: and it's quite diverse compared to the rest of the world. So I just... And, and I also think that just from a sheer, like, you know, rhetorical or communication point of view. If you want people like him to listen to what you have to say, right? Give the country a little bit of credit and say, you know what, compared to most countries, Britain is not bad, right? It's not the most racist country in the world but we can do better and here's why. As soon as you phrase it like that, people go, yeah, you know what, I'm sure we can do better. I think what really kind of riles people is the, the implication that the UK is kind of supremely bad, you know, and sometimes kind of uniquely racist, well, when so, that's just not true.
0: So what you're talking about, Ian, is, is how to have these conversations. So let's turn to Adam. His book is called How to Argue with a Racist. So in a sense, it's all about the kind of yes, tactics absolutely. you should adopt. first question, Adam, is, is why this book now?
3: Right. Well, I mean, you d- discussing how the political landscape has changed over the last few years is, I mean, I, I do touch on that in not particularly great depth, and this is more your domain as, as sort of political and cultural commentators. But the alignment of that with amazing progress in genetics, which is my field, um, along with conversations within the university sector and beyond about the association, the historical association between the development of science during the so-called Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution, which are inherently linked to European expansion, along with a, some, something that none of us really predicted, and within within the genetics community, which is lively and vibrant and engaged, which is the emergence of ancestry testing companies, the, the huge business that is genetic genealogy, which has had a, a fascinating effect in changing the conversation about identity and about genetics for many people. As someone who is who straddles the divide between the academy and public, what, what I noted in the last few years is that there's such a huge disconnect between what science says, what genetics says about the existence and the history of race and what many people in the public think. So the strands to the races that I, I want to equip people To argue with. There are multiple types. Dealing with white supremacists is one. In a sense, they're soft targets, but they are obsessed with genetics. I spend a lot of time on Stormfront and other neo-Nazi and white supremacist websites. And I don't know whether those conversations trickle out into the real world, but there is a real, real sense of the importance of bloodlines and pure ancestry that has been emboldened by ancestry testing kit. Now, that's obviously pernicious and awful. At the soft end of the spectrum, most people who use these kits, most people are Europeans, Westerners, and, and European-derived Americans, and they, they just want to find out that they're descended from Vikings, right? I, get, I literally get, like, two emails a week from someone saying, I either am or I want to be descended from Vikings, to which the answer is, well, you know, you are, because everyone is. Everyone in Europe is descended from Vikings, which is a, a mathematical and genetic demonstration that I go into the book and won't do now. But it's the same issue. You've got, at one end, you've got white people want to discover that they're descended from Vikings or Celts or whatever. And at the other end, you've got white supremacists who want to discover that they're absolutely some kind of notion of purity, of racial purity, which doesn't exist, which is a fiction, both genealogically, ancestrally, genetically. So that's another you know factor, something that's changed in my landscape. So
0: reading the book, and I enjoyed reading the book, and it's a kind of popular science book in the sense that you can read it and in a relatively short order, you can get a pretty good grasp of some of the kind of issues and where the research is and all of that. But the point you've alluded to is one that kept coming back to me, which is most racism, I think, in this country is cultural It's to do with, as you said yourself earlier on, attitudes to people with different skin colour have got better, but attitudes to Muslims seem to have got worse, deteriorated. So I think the racism that says people with a different skin colour are inferior to me for bogus scientific reasons is much, much less prevalent than, you know, Muslims are all putative terrorists or people from the African Caribbean community are more likely to be criminal or whatever it might be, due to kind of families and all, you know, so cultural assumptions, right? I'm kind of interested, in writing the book, you talk a lot about history. So you talk a lot about the reason why these scientific myths, these kind of eugenic myths, the historical role and the kind of shameful views that otherwise great historical figures from kind of, you know, Voltaire to David Hume had about race. To what extent do you think that these wrong scientific views are in some way connected to racism today, which is primarily a cultural rather than a kind of neo-scientific position I, well it's a
3: it's a it's a great question i try to address that question with regards to both sport and music to a lesser extent because i think that these black people are better at sport is a really important common trope and and often when having this discussion people say well that isn't a racist view because i want to be better at sport and being able to run really fast is awesome um but and it as also, you say in the book
0: uh, there would been one non-african-caribbean medalist in the sprint in the olympics since 1983 or something so people could say well look like, look yeah, right okay
3: but the history is really important because there is a great and long-standing tradition of in the foundations of, of the pseudoscience of race during the last few hundred years of reducing the intellectual capabilities of people of African descent and enhancing their physical. This is done from Linnaeus onwards, who say that black people are lazy and palvering but strong, all the way through to the example of Jesse Owens, who does the you know giant fuck you to Hitler by winning the 4x100, 100, 200 and long jump in Berlin in 1936, after which his coach says the black man is better at sprinting because he needs to be able to outrun gazelles in the jungle. He is closer to nature. Right, that's a view in, in the 1930s but in the in the 2010s the assessments by sociologists who say when we talk about sport in the media landscape and I forget the exact statistics but the vast majority of comments about elite athletic success of black athletes or African-American athletes is down to their innate physical abilities, and the vast majority of comments on white success in elite athletics is down to their industriousness and their intelligence. Next time you're watching Match of the Day or the cricket or any sporting event, just attune your ear to the comments made about black players' And white players. It also relates to sexuality, the myth of large penises in black men, which is not scientifically true, but innately related to the physicality of the black man, whereas the intellectual prowess and, and skill and grace of the white man is literally described by Linnaeus in the, in the 18th century kind of
1: listening to it as a black Muslim woman, one of the things that really sticks out for me is the fact that there is a lot of focus on terms like this pure bloodline. I come from a country which was based on civil war because of ethnicity and tribal bloodlines. So the idea of the fact that rape is used as a weapon of war in order to wipe out clans and to wipe out Bloodline, so it's not just the white supremacists that seek in its pure bloodline, like you know, from from the continent of Africa to South America to everywhere else, in indigenous people of that country being wiped out. So I think that whole thing of supremacy and the selfish gene and the survival of that kind of conversation is something that's very primitive to us. So it's not just white people that want to stay pure. The idea of me marrying outside of my my clan base. We, we are called the Jews of the Horn because we are one family, one bloodline. You can chase our great-great-great-grandfather. It's one guy. And then that goes out into this. So these are conversations that happen on a day-to-day basis. And then the whole conversation around Islam as well. If you had a Saudi Arabian Muslim move next door to you, you would have a different reaction to that and a Pakistani Muslim moving in. So when you say Muslims in Britain, you assume Asians. And I was talking to a senior politician the other day, and he's like, how do we win the Muslim votes? And I'm thinking, like, what does that actually mean? Do you mean the Asian votes? Because... Not all Muslims are Asian, but some like you know, Asians are Muslims. So I think there's a broader conversation of that. We generalise kind of things and from somebody that comes from a melting pot of all these things. We have to be very specific about the things that we talk about. Like, I don't even need to do a genetic database thing. I can say my surname and I can trace back to the first guy who landed in Somaliland, who was my grandfather. And so I find it fascinating. I think we have a massive focus on assuming that it's all about Western white culture and their identity to stay pure. Do you think this is
0: right, Adam, that in a sense, possibly all of us in some way find the idea of purity alluring, the idea that we can say that we are, you know, if there's one message in your book, is everything gets mixed up and gets mixed up again and gets mixed up again, and you can't trace everything to, you know, it, it is just much more complicated than that. Do you think anyone comes right, that even if you're not a racist, there's something kind of quite alluring about the idea, well, there's a really straight line that takes me back to a particular point, and I'm sure. pure in, that, in some sense.
3: Well, yes, and, and obviously identity and tribal identity for whatever that tribe is is an incredibly important part of the human condition. Generally, we're very inconsistent about how we do that. I'm from Ipswich, which means I, I bear the curse of being an Ipswich town fan. Many an afternoon I've spent at the Ipswich ground. am sorry for your troubles. And I've passed <laughs> that on to my own son, uh, who's, who has many years to, of it to come. But at the same time, you know, I'm a scientist. I don't identify as being mixed race, although I am. I have no cultural input from my Guyanese, Indo-Guyanese side of my family because I was raised by my stepmother, who's from Essex. And yet people impose that, or people who wish to attack me, specifically racists, impose that upon me. A weird thing happened a couple of years ago, which was that phrase was introduced into my Wikipedia page. I've never written any of the Wikipedia page, but at the age of 40, had never described myself as British Indo-Guyanese, and yet there it was as my description. I thought, well, how strange. Um, so our desire to appear... That's
0: one element, this, isn't it? I mean, you must recognise that, Nimco. You were, you are always described. I mean, you're becoming so well-known now, it doesn't have to happen. But, you know, when I read about you, there's always a description of you, which is kind of, well, what an interesting person is this because she's Muslim and she's from Somali, Somalia, and and I always say... You can't I, just be Nimco. You've got to be... There's got to be something before your name.
1: Yeah, I have several tokens in my hyphen <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so I do... And that's, that's
0: why I do... No, when, when you're introduced, no one says white, middle-aged, Ian Do they just say Ian No, I'm no. I'm sorry. Sure, no, no,
1: but if he was in, but this is the whole point. Is because we're a minority. If he was in Africa and everybody was like black or whatever, you would be described as like the white head, white guy. It's a distinctive thing that kind of if you stand out, that's what stands out because there's not a lot of you out there. But it's, I think identity is really interesting in, in the sense that if you ask me who I am, I would say I'm Somali ethnically from Somaliland, British nationality. My, my niece, who's the first generation to be fully 100% raised here, was three and a half when she first. Got that question of where are you from? cuz um, as you were talking about at the beginning, this this whole thing about being offended by where are you from question. I have never been offended by that. And I remember, like her answer was one of the most interesting things. She had no idea what she was being asked, and she said, "Oh, I'm from Acton. Well, actually, I'm from North Acton, but I was born in Hampstead."
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and that that thing of bringing it down is, to boroughs. The Hampstead
0: in... tribe, mind you, that is a tribe but, you want to be. <laughs> but this is, but
1: this is, but this is what I mean. So that whole kind of thing of identity in that kind of sense and race and everything else, I think it kind of broadens out. So. I think we're spending a lot of time being too complex about something which is very personal and I do think this idea of the way that the the far right on the national front say I hear that within my own family and my own communities in the sense of your daughter's breeding with other men, and all these other kind of conversations. So what I'm saying that tri- that, that that protectionism yeah. of a bloodline is not, that, and, that, and that's why I mentioned the whole thing about rape as a weapon of war. It's the fact that if you're trying to wipe out a community and a man's lineage, is you like you know, rape was one of those things. But are, are, we, going, going, but but are we going full of?
0: circle here, though? Sorry, but are we going full circle because in a sense we know that statistic at the beginning that first generation migrants would not have minded being asked where are you from
1: yeah that's why i said no that's why i said but, it kind of...
0: but second generation might justify be very justified but you say in the book uh, there's a point in the book and you say someone asked me where i was from and you said well, i'm going back to see my parents in ipswich this weekend kind of thing so but what there know, are, i mean the, the point the i'm making is yeah. that
3: it, when i say that is that similar to your yeah. niece or whoever it was you were describing You know, I was raised in Ipswich, I'm not particularly dark-skinned, but dark enough that people do ask, or have done over my life, where are you from? And you have to second-guess what they're actually asking there. Are you asking, are you from Ipswich, or are you from Suffolk, or are you from England? Or actually, what you're asking is, why are you more dark-skinned than most people? I haven't experienced much discrimination in my life because I'm light-skinned and went to a public school in Suffolk. But um, But does does that piss you off? What? That question. Well, I think it's interesting that to try and work out what they're actually asking, because are you saying, do you come from Acton? Because there's interesting stuff from Acton, or are you just are you trying to find a link to a geographical area that that we might, you know? Oh, I, I know. But see, I wouldn't
1: You'd... be that confused because I'm a first generation migrant, right, right? Right. And then, and then weirdly enough, then I would be more concerned about not marrying a guy from Somaliland. What would my kids look like? My niece would not be that concerned about who she marries in terms of the identity and the kind of the bloodline. So there is a a thing of like. I know what they're asking and I know that kind of conversation. But then at the same time, there's, there's also like, you know, a great fear of the fact that my mum, because of my integrated life and everything else, was very much freaked out by the fact that I'd probably marry a white guy. And I was very much like, that's not going to happen. And I was just like, actually, it probably will happen. But
0: <laughs> it's think, like... uh, see, what I think is part of what's interesting about this is in Afua Hirsch's book, she makes quite a lot of how she objects to the question, where are you from? I think there might even be a chapter called that. And what you're saying, because is actually you don't mind that question, yeah. right? And Adam, you're kind of going, well, sometimes I do and sometimes I don't. It depends who's asking it. What, one of the issues in this debate is a kind of view which is that, you know, middle class people who spend all their time talking about this stuff can kind of decode it. But people who don't, who are maybe less well-educated, less socially sophisticated, who don't mix in, in such diverse circles.
1: Or who are five. I, and just being asked they, to be an yeah, arse in they, the they, tube, yeah. They,
0: they, they, <laughs> they, 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 oh, oh, Poor
1: No, but it's true. She was. She was, know,
0: she was yeah, yeah. Yeah. But my point is you, you either But know they this can code get it wrong. You know. If you don't know the code, you get it wrong. And part of this whole race story is about white people who are kind of going, look, there's a set of rules here and I don't understand them, but I do know if I get it wrong, I'm totally screwed, you know? And that's, I'm not going to get back into the Lawrence Fox thing, and but there's a bit so of that going what? on, which and is, here they you go again, here's a know. white guy saying something perfectly innocent and the whole world rains down on they it. want you
2: to know that that you know I might get the code wrong but my heart's in the right place
1: yeah and I and I said so I get less offended by the lauren foxes of the white world than I do by the I I, I do get a lot of condescending conversations through my career and through the things that I do and all these things and I was at this event so there was a, a conference that happened on Monday it was about the African investment summit and it was actually really nice to see the British government sitting alongside African leaders with a level of respect and equality and there was none of this talk about empire was this, this was rape, this was happened. It was actually, it's 2020. What are we going to do in order to move the continent forward? What are we going to deliver for that? And that was because there was a level of respect from the lot of, the posh white men of saying, actually fine, we've all like, let's put our things aside. And then you go to these people that study Africa, the anthropologists, the SOAS, the, all these other kind of conversations. And they assume that the textbook is more informative than the lived experience of me as an African. So for me, like, where are you from? It's not as offensive as telling me about the tribal past of Africa. I was like, what are you actually well, talking about? See, I I, 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 know,
3: I have to take some responsibility for that. That is the scientific legacy. Yeah. That, that is 500 years of, I'm not taking personal responsibility right? <laughs> by the way, but that's my domain is what so, I mean. So I mean, those
1: are the things that we don't yeah. talk about. Those things are more offensive. Those are kind of like, we understand that there's diversity, there's conversations, there are issues of racism, there are issues of cultural tribalism, and faith-based genocides and everything else that's going on in Africa. We just assume that everything that happened in Africa is because of consequences of what happened through empire and all these
3: things. So so an example I was thinking of when you were talking about racism within Africa, which I think is really important, is Rwanda. Uh, and the fact that the Hutu and the Tutsi, that the, the Rwandan civil war, and the first time the UN describes rape as, as a weapon of war is in that conflict in '94. And over the course of know, six months, hundreds of thousands of people killed, Tens of thousands of war babies at best estimates. That is a conflict between two tribal groups, two populations within Rwanda. But the history is important because this is a conflict set up by colonialism. It is instigated in the 19th century by German uh, occupiers who deliberately racialized these two groups, who were perfectly friendly at that point. They are culturally separated and not particularly genetically distinct according to the latest studies. But the Tutsi have slightly lighter skin, they're pastoralists historically, they drink milk, and for that reason the Germans invent a, a category the hamites which are the sons of ham who are part of the ancestor of this one group and as a result they racialize these two groups Germans leave the belgians turn up and they reinforce this now the important by 31 i think it is they introduce ethnic identity cards The important thing about this is not that it happened, that is important, but both the Hutu and the Tutsis fully buy into it. They fully buy this separation that says that the Tutsi are superior to the Hutu. And as a result of that, you have a century of conflict. You have violent revolutions after the Belgians have, have buggered off right the way into the 90s when that is the revolution that, that causes that. Then now, we have in, Nimco, we've got to finish yeah, in a second, sorry.
0: but, but you know, we've just kind of scratched the surface. We may have to come back. We have to get you both back because it's so fascinating. But So one of the debates here is about... To what extent should, as it were, the majority population, the white population, be continuing to apologise for the, what their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents did? And to what extent, as it were, can you say, well, no, that's, that's gone now and let's just get on with things today? What's your view of how we should think about history and our kind of colonial legacy?
1: I have zero connection to that and zero need for an apology and a conversation because the people that kind of drove me out from my country looked like me and they were my people It wasn't a white person. And the people that ended up taking care of my family happened to be white people. So I have a complete different kind of context in that. I think the real conversation is the history and the impact of slavery in America. And what do we actually do to try to help African-Americans find an identity and have a conversation? And then how does that relate to African? I think for me, having the privilege of knowing the land that I was sourced from and being able to say, this is where my grandparents and everybody else kind of lays is a concrete genetic thing that actually the stability and the mental health it gives you is something that you can't really take away from and I think challenging that and having those conversations and in the context of now and actually seeing with the 2030 targets for the sustainable development goals and Africa's got its new manifesto of like you know 2053 whatever following towards those things and actually working with the future of Africa specifically it's women is more important to me than talking about what happened 200 years ago and
0: one very final question and I'm sure you get asked this a lot I know that you are personal friends of the prime minister and the prime minister's girlfriend. Some people think the prime minister is a racist. Do he's you think big, he's?
1: No, he's not. But right. it's, it's. I just, Yeah. I,
0: I, well, I kind of assumed you wouldn't be hanging out with him if you thought he was. But, but that's. But that's. <laughs> the,
1: but that is the whole thing. Is that the prime minister is not racist. I think that I've. met This is again. I've actually. I've met more people who are offensive about my race, and my identity, that are on the left and think that they're not being racist by not asking the where are you forum question and telling me about my Africaners than I have within the Conservative Party.
0: Great. That's a wonderfully controversial and interesting thing to finish this bit of the conversation with. Now, we always end the programme with a provocation and it's going to be a bit of fun this week. We have to be really quick because we haven't got much time. But I think, Ian, you're going to with all a challenge.
2: So I'm, I'm writing a column for the New Statesman next week and it's about... It's my first column of the year, so I'm sort of asking a question, which is, what kind of mistakes do you want to make this year? It's a bit of a meditation on a, a saying coined by an economist who once said... If you've never missed an aeroplane, that means you're spending too much time in airports. And and I just think it's so interesting. I actually don't agree with them about airports because I think airports are great. Like Me you can go too. shopping. Me like, too. I go like <laughs> but, three hours early. Yeah, right. so, but, but but the the deeper point is a really powerful one, which is you can make the error either way. And and in nearly all the choices we face in life, it's just the choice of which error you want to make. Like which kind of mistake do you want to make? So, okay. You know, so you, I, you go first. I, I, you go I, first.
0: Uh, which is the which is the error you well, want uh, to make? At the a moment, bit. I'm what, what,
2: I'm oversalting all my food because I've realised that if you use much more salt than you usually use, it makes your food taste better nine times out of ten. But one out of ten, it's like serving my family like the Dead Sea. Um, but, but I don't mind. I'll take that mistake because the rest of the time it's actually, it's actually improved. So, yeah, as yeah. the
3: science representative on this panel, I cannot endorse that as a, as a sensible thing to do. <laughs> uh,
2: well, the nutrition debate is interesting.
3: So
0: really. actually, like, we'll I'll tell you mine, you know, and it's very laddish. I'm, so, I'm sorry, but you know, Adam raised the issue of football, and I have been to Portland Road right, to see... My team, West Brom, play, and the mistake I would like to make is not to watch West Brom and Albion anymore because they nearly always make me miserable, and it could be a mistake because it could actually get promoted this season. But in the end, I have decided over thirty years that watching this football team makes me more miserable than it makes me happy. So I will take the risk. I will oh, try to wean myself. I know,
3: really but it makes powerful. me so miserable.
2: No, that, that's very wise. Yeah, okay, things that make you miserable—that's one of the Nimco, that's something rules. you want to get wrong this yeah, year? Yeah,
1: I want to. Do you know what's really interesting about what you said about the plane? I want to. I want to miss more parties. <laughs> Literally, yeah, I just can't good, be bothered standing around a networking anymore. I just yeah. want to miss more parties. I want to spend more time on the sofa. Having... So is that FOMA? Yes.
0: You've got to you've got to get over your FOMA. You're not. You're to You've got to come. So of...
1: basically, I want to like. I love you know, it when
0: you use hip language. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but, no. But it wasn't yeah.
1: about the fear of missing out. It was just the fear of overworking <laughs> and having conversations. So I just want to be able to say, you know, actually, you know I don't want to come. I don't really very yeah. good need to like okay. even like people are like, are you going to Davos? I'm like, no. What am I going to do? What am I going to do at Davos? It's and so when
0: people say, well, you really missed a great one, Imco, you'll go, yeah, well, fair enough. Take the rough with the smooth. Very good. Okay, Adam.
3: Well I can give a really sanctimonious answer. Because <laughs> science is always about making mistakes. We deliberately make as many mistakes as, as we can in order to work out what happens next. So I want to be corrected. I seek out correction by my... And this is the crucial point. I seek out correction by my peers, not by rando strangers on Twitter. <laughs> All well,
0: right. Yeah, I think, well, you know what? I mean, that's, <laughs> it's nice. It is a bit
2: sanctimonious, to be honest. <laughs> uh, but we'll let you go away. we will point to that. a mistake on page 138 of your book, actually. <laughs> Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> that's it for this episode of Polarised. We'll be back again in two weeks' time. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do spread the word. And if you can, leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. really makes a difference and it would be much appreciated.
0: Adam Rutherford's book, How to Argue with a Racist, is out on February the 6th, and I can strongly recommend it. And Nimco Ali is on Twitter and in The Times and various other places, and she talks about a lot of things really interesting and only very rarely talks about racism. I hope you've enjoyed Bolarise. It was presented
2: by me, Matthew Taylor. And by me, Ian Leslie. The producer was Craig Templeton-Smith, and we were brought to you by the RSA.